If you would, open up to Psalm 2 this morning. That's where we're going to be. We're starting a new series in the Psalms this summer. We're not going to go through all of them. Uh, We're going to do some selected essential Psalms this summer. And it's important to point out as we start this that Psalm 1 and 2 form an introduction to the rest of the Psalms, actually. Uh, Those first two ones kind of set up the rest of the collection of the Psalms that we have. And the first one we're not going to talk about today very much. We're going to be digging into the second one, but it's worth mentioning that the theme of the first psalm is all about the righteous person who meditates on God's word day and night. It's all about that that righteous person that meditates on God's word day and night. And then you get to Psalm 2, and we find the portrait of a different kind of person. We meet a different kind of person that's not like the person in Psalm 1. So would you stand up as we read this Psalm 2 together? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You may be seated. I want to return now to that first question that's posed in this psalm Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? In this psalm, it's actually a rhetorical question. The psalm does not go on to answer that question. Really, what the psalm is focused on is God's response to that reality. There is truth that the rulers of the world have raged, have set themselves against God, have wanted to rule on their own, have wanted to break free from his authority. And so really, the question it's answering is, what will God do about these rebellious humans? But I think it's worth taking some time to answer that question. Why? Why have so many people, why have the rulers of the earth, why have the nations set themselves against the almighty God? And we find that answer certainly in the Bible, but we also find that answer in the world as well. What would the world say is the reason that they have set themselves against the Lord? And I find a fairly succinct answer in a poem called Invictus. This might be familiar to you. There was a movie by that title um, that kind of tangentially relates to it, made a a few years ago. Um, but it's, it's a poem, and I'm going to give some critique of this poem, as you'll see. But for right now, I just want you to, there, there is something to it. There's something inspiring about it. There's a reason that people like this poem. The word invictus is Latin for unconquered. And this was written in the late 19th century by a man named William Ernest Henley. And when you hear his story, you kind of understand maybe a little of where he's coming from. When he was 16 years old, he had his left leg amputated. A few years after that, they wanted to amputate his right leg as well, but he found a doctor that was willing to try to fix it by surgery. So he had extensive surgeries done on his right leg, and they were actually able to save that leg. Then, while he was recovering from those extensive surgeries, he wrote this 
home. Out of the night that covers me, black is the pit from pole to pole. I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloodied but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Those last two lines might be what are familiar to you. And uh, some things that stick out to me in this, we're not going to spend a lot of time here, we're going to spend our time in Psalm 2, but some things that stick out to me about this, one is my unconquerable soul, that idea of I will not be conquered by anyone, or the line, my head is bloodied but unbowed. In the midst of adversity, in the midst of affliction, I will not bow my head, I will stand up straight. And we like that, it's inspiring that charging forward, I'm going to do it myself, I can accomplish this, I can do whatever I set my mind to. Then we get to that last, that last section. He actually takes a shot at God here. It matters not how straight the gate. We talk about the gate being narrow, the path being narrow that leads to God, not wide. And yet he's saying that doesn't matter. He said, it doesn't matter how charged with punishments the scroll. It doesn't matter what God has against me, all of the things he says that I've done wrong. It doesn't matter why, because I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? Because ultimately, every person wants to be the master of their fate. They want to be the captain of their soul. And really what's going on here is that we want control. We want control. It starts with just over our own lives. I want to be in charge of my own life. I want control over my own life. I don't want to be under anyone else's authority. I want to do what I want to do and because it's right in my own eyes. And it starts with ourselves, but for some people it can actually start to grow. And you start to want to have control and authority over other people and it grows and grows. And this is true from the top all the way down to the bottom. And we start at the top with this psalm. We're talking about world leaders, nations, kings of the earth, rulers. We're talking about the the rulers and kings of the earth. And this is certainly true about them. You think back through the Bible. You think about the Tower of Babel. Let us build a tower that goes all the way up to heaven. We want to be equal with God. Let us make a name for ourselves. Not making God's name great. Let's make our name great. You see this with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt who wants, you know, he wants his own power and control that he enslaves a whole group of people to do what he wants them to do. And then when he's faced with the reality of God's glory and judgment against him, he still stands firm with his hard heart against the Lord, saying, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. There's many other leaders that you see throughout the Bible that fit that same description But it's true throughout world history as well, outside of what we learn from the Bible. You think about many of the world leaders in the past wanting more and more power. What do they say? Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. It's a very short list of leaders throughout history that have sought God's glory above their own. How many can you really think of? Very, very few have sought to bring God glory rather than themselves. 
Some of them were actually actively fighting against God, warring against his people. But many of them were just passively wanting to rule on their own apart from God, not wanting to be under God's authority and rule, but seeing themselves as the ultimate authority. Because I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. This is true not just of world leaders, but other leaders as well. You come down the ladder a little bit and you think about senators and governors. You think about CEOs to the manager at McDonald's. Even pastors sometimes can fall into this. You start with good intentions, wanting to lead people well, to make a difference in the world, but then you get a little bit of taste of that that power and that control and you want more and more. And ultimately, it's my authority, my way is best. But it's also true in our homes at times. Fathers exasperate their children because they want perfect obedience rather than a relationship with them. You think of moms who want control. They want control. Maybe it's the cleanliness of their house that they want to keep control over. Maybe it's the activities of their children that they want to control. And and I'm not saying all of these things are bad, but really, it's about your heart. And as you're going to see as, as we go through this, that's really what all of this is about, is your heart towards God. Is your desire to insist on your own way or to let go of that control and trust God, to bring him glory instead of ourselves? There's a common saying in England, um, and, and I actually heard it from a Robin Hood movie that came out a few years ago. But Prince John says, would every man have a castle? And Robin replies, in England, every man's home is his castle. And we like that, don't we? Maybe I can't rule the whole world, but I've got my little corner here. And this is where I have authority and power and control to do what I want to do, to do what I think is best. And this is true all the way down to the toddler. And I can say that because I've got one. Our youngest daughter, Harper, is, uh, she just turned two years old. And it's kind of funny, sometimes you forget things as you have kids, and it's like, why do they call it the terrible twos? And then you're like, oh yeah, that's why. Her, one of her favorite sayings right now is, my turn, I do. And in some ways, that's really good. She's taking responsibility. She's learning how to do things on her own. This is wonderful. But sometimes it just doesn't work. Sometimes I have to respond to her and say, Harper, no, this is a kitchen knife. You need, you need to let us make dinner, not you. Does she like that response? No. She says, no, my turn, I do. It's kind of funny. Even, you know, I'm putting this together, thinking about this this last week, and then we went to the middle school camp out this last weekend, and uh, we brought Harper with us. And uh, who do you think had the biggest attitude this weekend? Was it with the middle schoolers, or was it my two-year-old Harper? You guys want to see what it looks like when a toddler um, rages, plots in vain? It's not what you would think. You would think, you know, the yelling and the screaming, but we had just had a conversation about how, no, We're not going to go that way. You need to come with me this way. And she just goes over and sulks and pouts. Why? Because she is the master of her fate. She is the captain of her soul. And you know, this tells us something. This isn't just a power problem. It's not just a leadership problem. This is a human problem. Why do the nations rage? Why do they set themselves against the Lord? Look at at verse 3. This is a quote from these kings and these rulers, from these people. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They feel constricted. They feel like God's authority is choking them. They're in a cage. They can't get out. 
They want to break away from God's authority, break away from God's rule in their life, and do their own thing on their own. And yet this has been true all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve set themselves against the Lord right there in the garden. And a lot of times we want to give them a break. Come on, it was just a piece of fruit. Like, what's the big deal here? Why does this matter so much? And yet, God, the creator of the universe, creates everything. And then he says, you need to trust me. I know better than you. This is what's right. And this is what's wrong. And what's wrong is for you to take that fruit, to go against my authority. And what did they say? I am the captain of my fate. I am the master of my soul. We're going to decide what's right and wrong for ourselves. We're going to come against your authority and make our own in the world. That desire to be autonomous, to rule ourselves as we see fit, is deep down in the heart of every sinful human being. So that's where we start out with this psalm. Those first three verses give us that picture of rebellious humanity. And then we move to God's response. So actually what we're going to see here, the next two sections are all about God's response. How will God respond to rebellious humanity? And then at the end, we get a surprising twist. Because you might think that that would just be the end. God's going to deal with humanity. We'll see how that works out. But at the end, he says, there's still a chance. There's still time for you to repent, for you to come back and trust me. But we'll see that at the end. So let's go to God's response. Okay, we've got rebellious humanity. We see what that is. It's not just the kings of the earth. It's all of humanity rebelling against God, wanting their own way rather than his. How will God respond to that? Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Is that a surprising response to you? God laughing? Like it's funny? But it's not quite like that. In the midst of human rebellion, God is not worried. In fact, it is absolutely ridiculous that humanity could ever think that they could successfully rebel against the almighty creator, God. It'll never work. It's, it's ridiculous. It's deserving of ridicule. So God sits up there, what are you guys doing? You guys really think this is going to work out for you? He laughs because he's not worried about it. And he doesn't need to change his plan. He has a plan from eternity past. He knows already what he's going to do about it. But verse 5, we get a picture of it. It says, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. God must deal with the rebels with wrath and fury. He must come to destroy them. And we often think of God's wrath and fury being like fire poured down from heaven or a lightning strike or maybe a worldwide flood. That's how God's going to deal with this. And yet we find that that's not how God's going to deal with it here. He's actually got a different plan that starts to unfold in verse 6. What does he say? As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. In the midst of these rebellious kings and nations around, God's going to raise up his own king. There's something interesting here, actually, because as you see, it's past tense. I have set my king. There's a reality, even as this psalm is being written, there's a reality where God has already done this. God has already raised up a king of Israel to do his work in the world. And yet, another thing that we find about this psalm is it's also prophetic. It's also talking about the future. It was not ultimately fulfilled back then before this was written. This will be fulfilled in the future for them. And this is where we get some tension here. 
And we have to walk a fine line this morning that I want to challenge you to try to do this because when we remember that this is prophetic, we often jump to who it's really talking about. Because although this was future for them, a lot of it is past for us. Some of it still hasn't come true, but part of it has already happened. And we tend to want to look at who this is about and jump to that and not really pay attention to what this psalm is saying. So I want to encourage you, you know who this is talking about probably, and I'm going to drop lots of hints along the way about who this is about. But try to put yourself in the mind of an ancient Israelite. How would they have understood this when it was written so that you can better understand who it's really talking about? So we have this king, and he's the king on Zion, my holy hill. This is Jerusalem, so this is a king of Israel. God's talking specifically about a king of Israel that he's raising up. And actually, this points us back to verse 2. I didn't talk about this much then, but back in verse 2, we see that the kings of the earth have set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. Some of your translations out there, you might find that word capitalized. There's a capital A there, which might be surprising. Why is this word capitalized in the midst of all of this? Well, in the Old Testament, typically there's two types of people that are anointed. There's priests and there's kings. And from the context here, it seems pretty clear that we're talking about a king, although it's not totally inappropriate to also talk about this person in terms of a priest, but that's a whole other thing. So we've got this, uh, this anointed person as a king, but actually, if you transliterate that Hebrew word into English, how would we say that word in English? It would be Messiah. That's curious. Does that sound familiar to any of you, the idea of a Messiah? What we've learned so far about this king is that he's a Messiah, king of Israel. And the next three verses in 7 through 9, each one is going to tell us something else about this king that we need to know as we kind of build out this portrait of who is this king that God's going to raise up to deal with these rebels. Let's keep going. So we have the Messiah, king of Israel. Then in verse 7, actually, I need to pause again. This gets confusing, and so I need to deal with it. I need to explain it now because there's some perspective shifts in the psalm. In the first two verses, we saw the narrator talking about the nations, and then in the third verse, he quotes, this is what the kings of the earth are saying. Then in four through six, we move to God's perspective. This is his perspective, and then he actually speaks. But then in seven through nine, we actually move to this anointed king, this Messiah king. We move to his perspective. He's the one speaking now, but he's actually only saying what God has told him. That's actually interesting in and of itself, that this king, all he says is what God has told him already. And so we, we get it from his perspective, but it's God's words. And then at the end, we move back to kind of the narrator, the psalmist, giving us a warning. So this is the king, what God has said to him. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Oh, this king is going to be God's own son. That's, that's actually fairly unique. That wasn't a normal thing. To call the king of Israel God's son was not a normal thing throughout history. But we do find it in a very important chapter in 2 Samuel 7. You can always remember that case. Okay? 2 Samuel 7 is the covenant that God made with David. And so David tells God, hey, I want to build you a house. And God says, no, um, meaning a temple. And God says, nope, I want to build you a house, meaning a dynasty, that there would be a line of kings after him. And one of the descriptions he gives, God says about this king from the line of David, he says, um, I will be to him, this is in 2 Samuel 7, 14, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So we learn from here, 
As we're building out this portrait, this is a Messiah, King of Israel, who is God's own son. And verse 8 says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. We're talking about a king of Israel, and yet, he's going to rule more than just Israel. To the ends of the earth. It's not just a king of Israel. This is a king over the whole world. And this draws our attention to Daniel chapter 7, which actually we read earlier in the service. I'm going to repeat a couple of the verses now. In Daniel's vision, And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, a human. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This adds to this portrait a little bit because we learn that this Messiah, King of Israel, who's God's own son, who's going to reign over the whole earth, will reign forever and ever. He has an everlasting reign. His reign will never cease. He will be the king forever and ever. Then one last piece of this, verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So far we've seen descriptions of the king and now we see what the king will actually come to do. And sometimes we read this and it's a little uncomfortable. This idea of a rod of iron. We don't, we don't like that idea of a heavy-handed king that's going to come and bring destruction or judgment on people. And yet, we do want justice. We want God to make all that is wrong right. We want him to get rid of the evil and the hate that's in the world. And in order to do that, he needs to raise up a king that has a rod of iron that can actually do something about the evil that's in the world. That phrase, rod of iron, actually shows up three times in the book of Revelation. And it's all talking about this same king, this king we look forward to in the future that will come again with a rod of iron. And that rod of iron is a weapon of fear to those who set themselves against God's king. But it's a weapon of protection to those who find refuge in that king. Okay, let's summarize this. All that we've learned about this king. So, the world has set itself against the almighty creator God. What will God do about it? He will raise up his king, his Messiah, king of Israel, who is his son, who will rule over the whole earth forever and ever with perfect justice. And ultimately, our only hope is to join him. To set ourselves against him isn't going to work. Our only hope is to join him, to run to this king and take refuge behind his walls, to be safe in his care because his arms are open wide. Who is this king? What is his name? It's Jesus. That's right. Most of you have probably figured it out already, but this is our King Jesus. And understanding that this is who Jesus is is so important to our faith and to our lives. We see how part of this has already been fulfilled. The first three verses the nations raging, the people's plot in vain, the kings set themselves against the Lord and against Jesus. The religious rulers of Israel and the civil rulers of Rome did this when they arrested, condemned, and crucified Jesus on the cross. In an effort to be their own authority, to take charge of the world for themselves, they killed God's own son. And yet, what is God's response to that? He who sits in the heavens laughs. 
And don't get me wrong, I don't want to make light of God's response to Jesus. He, he had to turn his face away from his son. This was a sad, grievous time for him. And yet in the big picture, God can laugh. Why? This was all part of the plan. They thought they were destroying God's king, and yet they can't do that. Because three days later, God raised him from the dead, showing that his death was all part of the plan to die on the cross for our sins and to raise again to rule forever. Bringing salvation and eternal life for all who believe. We see how part of this has already been fulfilled in Jesus' death and resurrection. And with all of that comes, what do we do about it? This is where we turn to, okay, what does this mean for us? And there's actually two big picture applications. These last three verses are going to tell us something about that. But before we get to those, I want to I stop and, and talk about the two big picture applications. The first one is that we rejoice. Because we live in a world where the nations rage. The people's plot in the vain. The kings set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. They want to break free from God's rule and authority. They want to rule themselves and do what's right in their own eyes. And we see it. I mean, honestly, is there a single world leader right now that we can say is a true follower of Jesus that submits to them and wants to glorify him rather than themselves? I don't know that there is. And yet, and that, that paints a bleak picture for us. We feel terrified about what will happen in the future. Our safety, our freedom, our well-being are all in danger of being taken away. We see a future of war, famine, and persecution. And yet, we don't have to worry. In fact, we can join God in laughter, knowing that Jesus has risen from the dead and is right now sitting on the throne, ruling over the whole universe, and he will sit as king on his throne on this earth at some point in the future as well, when he comes to bring justice and make everything right again. We don't need to fear the world because Jesus is the king. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Take refuge in Jesus and his salvation. That's the first thing we do is we rejoice. We don't have to worry about the world because God's in control and he has raised up King Jesus to rule forever and ever. He's got it in his hands. There's a second application here. It's a little less comforting because we have a choice. The truth is there is a king that rules over the whole universe forever and ever, and his name is Jesus? And will you set yourself against that king? Against his rule and authority in an effort to control your own life? In an effort to be the master of your own fate? Will you set yourself against him, or will you submit to his rule and take refuge in him? And I'm talking to two types of people out there this morning. There may be some of you who, who have truly never submitted to him in the first place. Who have never come to that place where you say, you're God and I'm not. They're, you're still over there wanting to control your own life, wanting to be your own God in control of yourself. Will you submit to him? Salvation starts with recognizing that God is God and I am not. And that I can't save myself and I have to submit to him for my salvation because I can't do it on my own. But you know, the rest of us in here would probably say, of course I've chosen to take refuge in him. Of course, I've trusted him with my whole life, and yet, have we really? 
Maybe we've trusted him for our salvation. We've recognized I can't save myself. And yet, you know, there's these certain things, these certain areas of my life that I think it's better if I just hold on to that for a little while. You know, Jesus, I think I, think I still know what's going on here better than you do. And I, th- I think it'd be better if I just keep this one for a while. We don't want to trust ourselves to God. We don't want to submit to his authority in our lives. We want to do it on our own. So what is the remedy for this continuing rebellious attitude towards the king? Well, we find it in these last verses. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is where we find that surprising twist. Because all along the way, we've seen just rebellious humanity. And what is God going to do about it? He's going to raise up a king to destroy those rebels. And if you stopped right there, there's no good news. And yet there is good news. We see God's mercy here. Despite all this rebellion, what is God going to say? Here's a warning. Be wise. There's still an opportunity to come to him. Even for these rebellious kings, there's still an opportunity to submit to his rule and authority and salvation in your life. There's three things, three um, uh, commands that we see here. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, and kiss the Son. And what I love about all three of these, actually, is that they're not, it's not like rules to keep. We often think of that in terms of like commands like that, like, okay, well, what do I got to do to be saved then? I got to keep these laws and these rules, and if I do that good enough, then, then, I'll, then I'll be good enough to go to heaven, something like that. And yet, that's not what these commands are. All three of these, as we go through them, you'll see this is all about your heart posture towards God. This is all about our perspective of who God is and who we are. Let's start with that first one. Serve the Lord with fear. There is so much in that statement right there. In fact, I think I could preach a whole sermon just on that statement. But don't worry, I'm not going to start a new sermon right now. Uh, The kids already earlier mentioned that the preaching is too long, so... (laughs) We... I'll be succinct here. I actually want to phrase it a little bit differently um, to help us understand it. You could put this as honor God in the work that you do. That word serve can be translated as, uh, as serve, also as work, and actually, interestingly, also as worship. Worship is actually tied up all into this. Our work and our worship really go together. And so this, this teaches us that we should honor God in the work that we do. We should respect him in what we do. So the first question to ask yourself is, what is my work? What work has God given me to do? And as you think about work, you probably think about the job that you have that gets you money, right? My vocation, my career, whatever it is, that job that I do for money, that's my work. How can I honor God in that job that I have? And part of it is back to why. Why am I doing this job? Um, what, am I doing, what am I working for? But it's also how the way that I do this job? Am I going to work with honesty and integrity, reflecting God's character, showing other people the light of him, or am I going to do all of this for myself and my own gain? But there's lots of other types of work as well, not just the job you get paid for, but even think about raising a family. For those of you that have kids, you're raising a family, that is work that God has given you to do. Or maybe for some of you, it's taking care of your parents. Maybe your parents are elderly, you're taking care of them, that's work that God has given you to do. Or even things like taking care of the house and mowing the lawn. Believe it or not, there's a way that you can mow the lawn for yourself and your own pride. Or you can honor God 
in the work that he's given you to take care of your yard. All of our life, we have work that God has given us. How can I respect and honor him? How can I glorify God in the work that he's given me rather than serve myself? And really, what we're trying to answer here is, okay, we've got this rebellion inside of us, right? We see the darkness outside and we see the light that Christ brings, but we also see the darkness inside of our rebellious hearts. And we ask that question, how do I get rid of this rebellion in my life? And that's what these three things are pointing to. Number one, serve the Lord with fear. Number two is rejoice with trembling. This is a unique phrase in the Bible. You, can't, you don't find this anywhere else. In fact, that word trembling shows up a few times, but it's never associated with joy. It's never associated with rejoicing. And it's kind of surprising to find it here. How do we rejoice but with fear? These two lines go together. They're, they're parallel in the, in the poetry. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. We're talking about similar things. So how do I rejoice and have joy in the midst of fear and trembling? There's one perfect place in all of history, in all of the Bible, where rejoicing and trembling intersect. It's the cross. When I think of what Jesus suffered on the cross for my sins, I tremble with grief, with sadness at what he had to go through. And yet, I rejoice because he willingly went through it for me. This connects to our worship as well. Now, once again, our worship, we worship God in all that we do in life and all the work that we have. But we also worship in song here in this church this morning. This is a good place to be when it comes to that worship and song time. To have that respect and honor towards God while I rejoice in all that he's done for me. Not being focused on myself and my music preferences and all of that, but rather put my attention towards God and rejoice in the fear of the Lord. I should rejoice in the Lord and yet never forget what it cost for my salvation. And both of those lead to this third one. And this third one is really, really the most important one. It's the one that it all comes together on. Kiss the sun. That's a strange phrase. What is going on here? Some of your, some of your uh, translations actually will interpret it a little bit more for you, give you some hints as to what it's really talking about. Because it's not a romantic kiss. It's not even so much a loving kiss, although there is an aspect of love that's a part of it, as you'll see. Um, but it's really a kiss of submission. Or you could also say allegiance. It's, it's like uh, an example you give. is It's like kissing the king's ring. You can imagine that if you've seen that before. This idea of I'm going to bow before the king. I'm going to submit myself to him. I'm going to give myself over to him. And this really, this is the answer to this whole psalm here because it's the exact opposite of those first three verses. In the first three verses, we saw rebellious humanity, people um, setting themselves against the Lord. And that's the direct opposite of bowing before the king to kiss him in submission, to say, I submit myself to you. I'm not going to rebel against you anymore. I'm going to put myself under your authority and under your rule. And really what it is, is it's saying, not my will, but yours be done. And like I mentioned earlier, we actually, we do this even in our salvation, right? We don't do anything to earn our salvation, and yet we have to come to that place where we recognize that God is God and I am not. That he's right and I'm wrong. I can't do anything to save myself. I have to submit to him for, for my salvation. I have to join him. I have to be with him if I'm going to be saved. It's only through the blood of Jesus on the cross for our sins. But then after that, 
we start that process of sanctification where slowly but surely we're surrendering different areas of our life to God. Right? We might give him our salvation first, but we've got all these other silos, all these other things that we're holding on to saying, God, I don't want to give these up yet. I want to hang on to these for a little bit longer. I want to do what I want to do. I don't want to quite give that over to you yet. And yet, aren't those still areas of rebellion in our lives? Areas where we want to keep autonomy over, where we want to have the control, where we want to be the boss in our lives and not let God, not trust God with ourselves. And ultimately, that's what it's about, is trust. Do you trust that Jesus knows better than you and that he can do it better than you? I actually have this conversation with my sons quite a bit. <clears throat> They'll be a, we'll be in a, a discussion or maybe more of an argument. And maybe they've done something that, they, that I don't think they should do. Or maybe they want to do something that I don't think they should do. And so we're having a discussion about it. And they're giving me the reasons why they should do that thing or why that thing's fine, all of that. And there's times where sometimes I have to just say, stop. Do you trust me? Do you trust that I love you? Do you trust that I know better than you? And do you trust that I want what's best for you? How do you think they respond? Sometimes they go, ah, you're right, Dad, I'm sorry. Sometimes they go, no, I don't trust you. <laughs> Let's work through it then. That's an opportunity. Let's work through this together. Uh, the hardest part is when they say they trust me, but they're lying. They don't, they don't really mean it. Isn't that what it's about? When I'm not willing to give Jesus control, authority over an area of my life, it's because I don't really trust him with that thing. I still think that maybe I know how this works better and my way is better than his. You think about different areas of your life, how you spend your time, how you interact with others, what you spend your free time doing, you know, all those kinds of things. Are you trusting God with that, with what he says, or is this all about me and what I want to do? And it's really the antidote to selfishness. I mean, sin is selfishness. And, and sometimes we're even doing the right things, but we're doing them for the wrong reasons. I was reminded of this this, this morning, and it's just, it's hard because you can do all the right things, and yet, ultimately, I'm doing it all for me. I'm doing it all to make me look great. I'm doing it all to make, give me more power and control and authority or, or more satisfaction and enjoyment in life. How do I get out of that? How do I break free from that trap of rebellion? I have to trust that Jesus loves me, that he knows better than me, he can do it better than me, and he can take care of this. And that's what it all comes back to. Most of the kings of the earth in history past were not in active warlike rebellion against God. Some were, but most of them, most of them it was more of a passive rebellion. Like, like Harper walking, walking away from me and just insisting on her own way apart from me. They wanted to just be left alone by God to manage and to rule their own kingdoms without being accountable to anyone else. I don't want God telling me what to do. I want to be the one who says what's right and wrong. I want to be the ultimate source of authority. And that's in us, all of us, as well. Most of us in here would absolutely recognize that there is a God. And we would even say that he's the king and he's in charge. And yet there's still certain areas, certain things in our lives, that we would like to maintain that control, that we would like to manage without him. And isn't all of it that 
deep down we still just don't trust him with everything? We still think that maybe we know better than he does in this particular area of my life. The last line of the psalm says, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. When we trust him, we take refuge in him. We have that protection of the king who rules with a rod of iron, and yet that rod of iron is a source of comfort for those who have taken refuge in him. I want you to imagine that you're in the wilderness and it's a scary place. Maybe there's wild animals that'll eat you. Maybe it's other people, evil people that will come against you and try to kill you. And you see a castle there. And you go, I, I could take refuge in that castle. That castle looks like a fairly safe place. But I don't really know who the king is. I don't know if I really trust the king of that castle. But you know what? It looks better than what's going on out here. So I'm, I'm going to go. So you go and you take refuge in that castle without really trusting the king over that castle. What's going to happen? Pretty soon you're going to be walking around and you're going to go, you're going to be trying to get your own way. You're going to try to be in charge. You know, really, we need, to, we need to fix that wall. We need to reinforce that wall over there. We really need more troops over there. You know, the food just isn't that great. We need more junk food here in the castle. <laughs> and yet that's not trusting the king. That's not trusting Jesus, that he actually knows better, that he's sovereign that he is trustworthy, and we do this often with prayer. So often we come to prayer saying, God, you know what you ought to do? This and this and this. But what if we started with praise and adoration, recognizing God for who he is, putting ourselves under his authority, under his care, and then we say, you know, God, can you do this in my life? And yet, not my will, but your will be done. I'm going to trust you, whatever the outcome to truly submit to Jesus is to trust him with your whole life and to say about everything, not my will, but your will be done. And in the end, maybe we can change the lines of that poem a little bit. To remind you from the beginning, the last part of that poem we read, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. I want to change that this morning. It does matter how straight the gate and how charged with punishments the scroll. But Jesus is the master of my fate. He is the king of my soul. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you praising you because you are the all-powerful God over the whole earth that created everything. God, you are the one who deserves all glory and honor and praise, and yet we live in the midst of a world where the nations rage, the people plot in vain, where not only kings, but everyone sets themselves against you every time we want to be in charge rather than you. Lord, we trust in you that ultimately, and, and rejoice in you that you will ultimately get rid of that rebellion, that you will come, you will put an end to all of the wrong in the world, all of the evil, all of the hate, and that you will establish your kingdom that will reign forever and ever, and it will be a wonderful, glorious place. We trust you with that, and we rejoice in that, Lord, but we also pray that you would shine the light in our dark, rebellious hearts. Help us to see the areas of our life that we have not submitted to you, the things that we still want to keep control and power over and not trust you with. Lord, would you help us see that this really is about trust? Do we really trust you with this, with that, with these different things in our lives? Can we submit to you 
enjoying you rather than trying to stand against you. And God, I pray that you would break our hearts for you, that you would help us to see the joy that we have in you, but also the sin that we have in ourselves, that we could turn it over to you, repent, and continue to follow you every day. Lord, I pray for all of us in here that we would trust you more and more each day. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.